0: Hello and welcome to episode 20 of the MedTech Podcast. You joined me your host, Kardeep Singh Badwell. Under this episode we have Caroline Lowe, President and CEO of Glimpse Bio, a company specialising in biosensor technologies for disease diagnosis and monitoring via blood tests. Having grew up in England at a young age, Caroline had quickly discovered a passion for organic chemistry, hence pursued a PhD in this field at Imperial College London followed by a career within research and drug development within various large pharmaceutical companies. With over 20 years successful experience in this field, she's now the CEO of Glimpse Bio, where she and her team are using their knowledge to help improve disease diagnosis, monitoring and treatment via the use of non-invasive technology. On this episode, she discusses why a location of Cambridge, Massachusetts is such a major hub for biotech, how she grew a company during the global pandemic and still managed to secure Series B funding during the height of it, her advice for students and those looking to start businesses in this sector, and her love for cooking different types of cuisine. Welcome to the show, Caroline. How are you today?
1: I'm very well. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here.
0: It's a pleasure to have you on. So often when people think of med tech or biotech in the USA, the first area that comes to mind is often Silicon Valley. However, I'm aware that your location of Cambridge, Massachusetts is a major hub in this sector. What is it about that location that makes it so popular in the industry? And what would you say are the unique traits about the area in comparison to other parts of the USA?
1: So Cambridge, uh, which is uh, just outside Boston, has this incredible intersection of uh, of academia and medicine and the venture-backed biotech uh, community. And it's those three things that have enabled um, the, uh, the biotech industry to really, really flourish there. And so we see, you know, great Uh, Storied academic uh, institutions. We have Harvard, we have MIT, we have the Broad, many, many other, you know, it's just this enormous density of, uh, of, uh, of, you know, incredible, uh, you know, in in, the sort of incredible um, uh, academic community there. We've also got these great uh, academic medical centers as well um, hospitals like the mass general the brigham many others as well where you know cutting edge research uh, is is going on and and both of those together provide sort of on the academic side you see this you know, ongoing source of um, you know very strong uh, research ideas that you know have gone through a very long you know gestation of often you know 5 10 years of you know very basic research um, you've got great a, cl- a great collaboration environment with the academic medical community to advance uh, uh, to, to advance medical ideas, and then you've got the venture backed community who uh, have been you know building out uh, their presence there for you know twenty plus years, probably longer than that now. Um, And so all the major VCs are are there, they've got very, very significant presence, but now this sort of spawned a much larger VC community there and what that has catalyzed is a huge um, number of venture backed uh, companies and and you see incubators for venture backed companies you see uh, venture Uh, VCs um, sort of incubating companies themselves. They actually set up uh, uh, infrastructures to grow companies and then to spin them out. Uh, But then you you almost can't, you know, you you can't walk uh, 10 paces without, you know, passing the door of a a venture-backed company. Um, It's an astonishing environment. And I remember when I, you know, I was first spending time there, you know, many years ago, um, I was just struck by kind of the incredible, density of, uh, of of kind of you know of scientific inquiry and you know there's a public transportation system there um you know on like the the tube in uh you know in in london and um i, I was just st- struck by the fact that there's sort of nowhere else in the world where you would see people reading the New England Journal of Medicine on, you know, on the, on public transportation and it's, you know, and, and in coffee shops, you see people sort of having debates about, you know, the latest, uh, you know, medical advances, you know, sort of almost journal debates or, you know, debates uh, about really uh, cutting edge science. And it, it's such a vibrant, dense, uh, you know, kind of intersection of science. And it's those three things together that are causing this enablement. And there's, there's a huge, huge uh, a sort of capital investment that is available there. And that's why you've seen, you know, all of these medtech and diagnostic uh, and biotech, sorry, medtech, diagnostic and biotech companies, you know, all kind of been spawned and grow up in, in that area. And now many extremely successful companies based there.
0: So going on from that topic, when we talk about innovation within the area, What is Glimpse Bio and what is it about the company's technology that makes it unique in comparison to other alternatives on the market today?
1: So Glimpse is a diagnostic company that's focusing on serious diseases without diagnostic solutions and we're doing that by detecting real-time biological changes in disease from just a simple blood draw and we're using uh, activity based sensors that we bioengineer and we tune to any protease mediated disease. So, the technology idea behind this is really simple. We have close to 600 proteases in our bodies, they're involved in every aspect of human health and disease. And we're just taking advantage of that natural body process. We're understanding the uh, involvement of those proteases, and then we design custom biomarker panels to measure the the involvement of these proteases in each disease state. Now, the really interesting thing with this technology is that it's dynamic, or if you want to think about it another way, it's an activity measure. And so we can assess baseline disease state, which is very important, but we can also assess disease trajectory. So if you want to think about that, we can tell how your disease is progressing or regressing over time, which as a patient, being, hopefully being treated is incredibly, uh, is incredibly important. And we can do that all in just one simple blood test.
0: Okay, so it sounds great. But going on from that topic, are there perhaps other uses for this technology, such as health, wellness, and fitness Mm. applications?
1: You know, it's a good question. So we're, you know, we're extremely focused on developing uh, diagnostics for diseases that don't have uh, that don't have diagnostics available today, and there there are many, um, and you know it's it's a real problem. But we actually have a platform. The, the, this whole idea of using uh, developing you know custom built uh, biomarker panels to uh, to measure protein activity is you know a, a platform based technology, and there are other applications for it. That we uh, certainly believe are, are of interest and somewhere we've already engaged already. So uh, there are applications in the uh, in, in collaboration with pharmaceutical companies to support their drug development uh, pipelines, both to uh, understand whether they have viable targets and they can move those from discovery into development. So that's one piece, sort of the notion of target engagement. Um, the second area is, which is I think very interesting, is also this idea of what's called theranostics. So where you have a Diagnostic and a therapeutic combined together. And our platform has the ability to identify those types of targets and combine them directly with a diagnostic together. And in many diseases, that can potentially be very valuable where you can tell, uh, you know, readily whether your 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 therapeutic is actually uh, working.
0: Having initially started as a chemistry student at Imperial College London, and now as the president and CEO of Glimpse Bio. How did that journey go for you to get to where you are today?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. So I, I would say, you know, if I look back or I think about my career, the, the thing that, the big thing that has always driven me is just, I have this incredible scientific curiosity. I've always been sort of propelled by science and sort of a, a really deep, you know, curiosity uh, around science. My early uh, career, I, I, I spent... Uh, you know, much more sort of on the academic side with really intent to move into academia. But what I found was that I was actually not just curious about science itself, but actually really curious about how you take that science, that fundamental research, and turn it into something that is, in my case, I was really interested in how it became applicable to patients. So how you go through that translation of turning, you know, a great scientific idea into a, 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 a something that patients can, can use. And that was what sort of led to my own career arc. So I spent my early career after that um, working in, in drug development. I was very fortunate. I uh, ended up leading a team that uh, took a, a drug to market, an in, incredible experience and one that many people who spend their whole career in, in drug development never never get to do. It was a great learning experience. Um, and after that, I, I sought broader and broader roles to really understand the whole drug development and commercialization ecosystem. Um, because for me, what I wanted to do at the end was sort of uh, so my end game was to be able to actually to run a company, to do what I'm doing now, to be able to do this myself, to be able to take a technology and to turn it into a, into a product that made a difference for, for patients. And I felt to be able to do that, I really needed to understand how to do it and and you know the best way to do it is to is to, to to not only to see it but to actually to to learn it on the job. And so um, I sought broader and broader roles uh, in in drug development. Uh, in I built and led a, a market access organization. Um, I I co led a, a large commercial business unit. Uh, and eventually, before I joined Glimpse, I I had a number two position in R and D organ in the in Bristol Myers Squibb in the R and D organization there where I was. Um, leading the, the portfolio um, and it, you know, it, was, it was sort of that was really bringing together all of those combined experiences. And it was when I had done all of that that I felt I've sort of you know, put away now enough experience and understanding to be able to kind of do it myself and to, 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 to take a team of people and to and find a, a great group of collaborators and, and build a company myself.
0: So it seems like you've now turned a dream into reality with this role. If you were able to go back to the past and speak to yourself at the start of your career, what <laughs> advice would you give to her?
1: Um, you know, it's a, uh, it, it's, a good, it's a it's a good it's it's a good question. Um, I think there are just some there are some critical things that I learned along the way that I think um, people do think about a lot now. But I, I think for me, are really a, a touchstones in their advice that I that I that I give people. The first is that as you're thinking about you know, organizations and roles and how you want to grow and develop, you really need to understand the importance of culture and how that impacts your ability to do a role and sort of grow and develop. And so be, you know, really think about that consciously, like what's important to you, what, uh, what facets uh, of, of how an organization operates are important to you and, and be mindful of that as you choose uh, an organization. The second is, as you are thinking about roles and how you want to grow and develop, really be true to yourself and what you want to do. There's no right or wrong in anything. And I think it's easy for people, particularly early in their career, to not know exactly what they want to do and they seek advice. And then, you know, they just they 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 take a role because someone says, hey, take this role, you know. Rather than maybe stepping back and saying, "You know this isn't necessarily what I want or maybe what sounds interesting to me, I'm going to wait and find something that is more aligned with what I want to do and and then I, I think sort of perhaps rolling those two ideas together that just the notion of authenticity I, I think being able to be authentic in everything you do, authentic in how you're following your you know your your career path and ambition. Uh, in how you're able to represent yourself at work, you need to find all of those, uh, uh, you know, elements within within a role, and you know that I think that's very important. And it's very important to being able to perform the best you can, uh, you know, in and contribute as you go over your career.
0: That's brilliant advice for the students listening today. Uh, for the students out there listening who are looking to get into this sector, what are the particular courses or degrees that they should start looking into?
1: You know, this is really interesting. So the whole biotech arena now is just is increasingly multidisciplinary in how it's advancing. And, you know, the the area that I'm in is is no different. And so what you see is that, um, you know, most companies in biotech and next generation diagnostics, where I am, is they're pulling people from you know, a number of different disciplines, and they're working in multidisciplinary teams. So you see uh, people with, you know, backgrounds in chemistry and biology and computational and often bioengineering as well, and they're all kind of working together. So those are kinds of disciplines that are are very uh, important. We're also seeing subspecialties, uh, you know, in those areas being important. So, you know, genomic expertise, those kinds of things being important. Um, but also, intersection expertise is incredibly sought after. Um, and so an example might be a biologist with machine learning capabilities, and we're increasing this thing um, that many of the colleges now are offering uh, undergraduate courses with with you know blended um, majoring, so that you can do both but you could do for instance both biology and you know some kind of computational Uh, Element And that is just, you know, it's a highly sought after um, expertise. So, I mean, just to give you a sense, I, you know, we were, uh, as a company, that happens to be a a very relevant expertise for our company. When we were first hiring, when we founded the company, or when I took over the company, you know, three years ago, people like that were truly unicorns. I mean, it was just impossible to find people who had that blended expertise who had graduated And now, uh, so MIT is a uh, one of the uh, colleges, uh, you know, um, is an Ivy League university in uh, in Cambridge um, that has a very very concentrated uh, science focus. Um, They they offer undergraduates exactly that course now, and you know that transition has happened just in the past couple of years. I think. Again, reflecting the symbiosis that you see, which is they know that that's incredibly important in the biotech sector and or, you know, sort of, you know, synthetic biology and so on and so forth. And so they're they're responding to that need. And you're seeing these blended courses. So huge change in just literally, you know, a couple of years.
0: On the topic of changes, what future developments are you working on at Glimpse Bio?
1: Today, this year is an incredible year for us, actually. So uh, we're we're on sort of the same trajectory de- developing the diagnostics I described. It's, it's just a huge acceleration year for us. So our lead indication is in a disease called NASH, which is fatty liver disease, where there are no good diagnostics available. Uh, we will, uh, we expect by the end of this year to have our NASH assay commercially uh, available, and also to have pivotal data on our second uh, um, uh, uh, on our second assay, which is for hepatocellular carcinoma, and that's an early diagnosis. Um, uh, um, that, that's a, treat, a diagnostic for early diagnosis of um, of, of, of the disease as well. Um, we'll also you know, be progressing work with a third indication in autoimmune disease. So it's a very exciting year for us. We um, you know we're looking forward to you know, having all of that data and you know, making our diagnostic much more available you know, by the end of the year.
0: Growing a business is often very challenging, especially during the global pandemic. I'm aware that during one of your fundraising rounds, this was closed during the start of the pandemic. How did you deal with that downturn of the market during this period? And what other challenges have you faced while working on this business?
1: Yeah, so this was an interesting moment. Um, We signed our term sheet, which is sort of the agreement to, you know, fund, uh, you know, to take financing from an investor. Uh, So we signed our term sheet for our second big financing round. Funds and financings are done in series. uh, So our series B financing. We signed our series b financing term sheet so for our lead investor the day the markets uh bottomed out in the pandemic um and so th- the markets were crashed um and at that point um the there was a lot of there was a sort of market panic um but what happened was a lot of you know cash pulled out of the public markets that hurt a lot of the uh, investors in the private markets as well. And uh, a lot of companies um, during that time were, you know, went out of business, small private companies like ours, Um, you know, they weren't necessarily, they weren't going to get to a data inflection point. Um, You know, some investors were trying to shore them up. The ones that look good, they were trying to shore up. And so there wasn't good. And then what they didn't have cash reserve, the investors didn't have cash reserves in many cases. So they weren't able to go and sort of draw from the, the private the, the the their investors to um you know to support their their companies and so it was a very sort of tenuous time. Um, so we had this term sheet, we had agreement to be funded, um, but we had to sort of complete the sort of the investor docket, if you want. We had to sort of fill up, you know, the the, the totality of the financing. And many of the investors we had who had agreed to finance us said, we we just can't do it right now. We have to support our companies um, uh, who we've already invested in. We can't come in anymore. Um, And so it was almost a sort of a do-over for us. We had to go out and and sort of fill out the financing round. And the natural dynamics of these situations are you have to do that quickly. Uh, There's a sort of a clock on it. Um, And so... You know, we did a, we did a couple of things. Um, you know, we were a long way down the path at this point, which was good. We knew we had a good value proposition. Uh, we had a term sheet, obviously. We had a big, uh, fortunately, uh, a very committed and well known investor behind us who wanted to continue to invest even under those circumstances, which was great. We had some investors who still wanted to stay in the in the round, um, so we just had to fill it fill it out and. I think we, we focused on a couple of things and it was, it was very simple. And it's, it's going to sound sort of motherhood and apple pie in some sense, but I think it was a shift uh, in, in, in how we thought about financing, but also it, I think it became a broader shift in how many thought about financing. The first was we took the time, a moment, it wasn't a huge amount of time, but we took a moment to really understand at that point, what was really important to our investors, like what did our investors really need and why did they need it? And that was because the world had changed like the world was upside down and people were thinking quite differently about what it is that they wanted to do and wanted to invest in and so we shifted how we presented ourselves as a company how we engaged there was a lot that we did differently in that moment we you know when you go through investing processes it's kind of becomes rote you sort of you're tuning yourself a bit but it's sort of a process everyone expects it. it's a dance everyone expects it to go the same way we actually shifted quite differently in how we presented ourselves and our company. And we took time to kind of understand what those investors needed. And then we really focused in on the thing. We, you know, we really listen. We always listen. We're careful listeners. But we then really focused on the things that were important to them. We let everything else fall by the wayside. And instead of trying to draw their attention to what we thought was important, we only paid attention to what was important to them. And sometimes there's generally kind of a bit of a yin and a yang there. You know, you're, you, of course, listening to what they're interested in, but you've also got a kind of a broader story that you're telling. In this case, we focused in a laser-like manner on what was important to them. And that, for us, it brought it home. It was, you know, we were able to close the rounds successfully. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a really good outcome. But I think that was an important lesson. And I, I honestly feel that subsequent to that, we generally think about investing now in that light, that there really is, you know, I think investors are probably in a different place. There was a very, you know, they they had, a, a I think, a very strong period after that. But in general, I think, you know, it's sort of colored our view a bit that, that we can engage a little bit differently and differentiate ourselves because of that, that engagement. Just to answer your second part of your question, that pandemic experience for, you know, like for us, like many companies was, um you know was a was a time that was you know was was a real test I I think that we uh we were fortunate we weathered it extremely well and we weathered it well um I I think in part because our culture going into that was extremely strong we had I I was I'm very much a kind of a culture first uh kind of CEO and just as a leader just my philosophy I I really focus on how the company operates, sort of who we are, what our fabric is. Uh, It's not like, it's not words on a piece of paper. It's like how we actually act. And that was very ingrained in the company. And, And so then when we had to sort of pivot to working differently, there was a lot that bound us together already. So that was good. The second piece that was just, again, happenstance was that uh, at the time we were manufacturing uh, clinical supplies in China, uh, 200 miles from Wuhan. And so in at the end of December, we started to get wind of something (laughs) Uh, just as you know, the sort of the initial viral spread was occurring. And uh, I had in my prior job um, one of my responsibilities and it actually was a responsibility that I hated, but I learned a lot doing it. Again, this is why it, it get lesson, career lesson, right? Sometimes doing things that you don't like is a good thing. Um, you, you learn a lot. Uh, I was responsible for emergency preparedness in my prior job. And that meant, you know, covered a plethora of things and it meant dealing with like real significant emergencies but I really had to train and understand how to deal with emergencies. And it also meant that I had to deal with emergency planning like and we're talking about major emergencies for a 6000 person organization and multi sites across the world. Um, and so I had sort of built a whole bunch of muscles that I never intended to build, but I kind of had a sixth sense and so as I started to hear about this from our supplier in China, because I was monitoring it because we were about to start a clinical study and I'm like, this isn't that something that's not normal about this. Um, and sort of one other piece of color was that I had uh, in a prior prior role had worked on the SARS pandemic or the SARS uh, epidemic. Uh, so I had sort of seen some of these things in, you know, I started to put a puzzle together and I I felt that, Maybe there was something that was not normal about this. Um, So a small, just a couple of us on our team um, started to plan in January for what if this was actually, you know, an epidemic and what if it came to the US and what would we do? Um, And it's, you know, I think my team thought that was a little crazy, but, you know, we planned and it started just initially planning for, you know, clinical study management, but it became a bit more significant. And then we planned, well, what if we have to shut the company? You know, as you remember, the information was snowballing in January of 2020. And so, you know, things were getting more and more significant. And by the time, you know, we got to the point of, you know, needing to shut down the organization, which we did uh, two weeks ahead of the shutdown in the U.S., and slightly ahead of the Biogen uh, outbreak in in the US, which was sort of the epicenter of, you know, the the, the, sort of the, 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 one of the big outbreaks in the US. Um, We had planned excessively. (laughs) We knew exactly what we were going to do. And not only had we planned, but we had conditioned our organization. We had started to talk to our organization about it. They knew exactly what was coming. Uh, In early February, we had told them what we were doing, how we were planning. And we said to them, we think it's possible that, you know, there'll be some significant disruption to not only our organization, but to the country, plan at home, plan how you're going to take care of your kids, you know, plan all of, you know, we gave them a list of things to plan. We said, take time off if you need to organize it. And people did. And they thought we were a little mad, but they all did it. uh, Or most of them did. And then when we actually shut down, they were like, "We thought you were a little crazy, but it really made a difference because we actually thought about it, and then you know it actually helped." And so, when we went into that, there was we sort of had a week or two where we were like really wobbly, you know, we were finding our feet, and it was not easy. We didn't miss a single um, we We didn't miss a single milestone. Um, nothing, absolutely nothing, happened to us operationally. Um, we we were we didn't miss a beat. It was a little wobbly when we were operating. I mean, we went down to almost complete, you know, shutdown because there was a period where um, even medically exempt companies, we were medically exempt companies, could only have very limited personnel in. Um, but we even man- we managed through that as every company did. Um, and like many companies in our situation, we actually saw we were highly productive. And I think it's in part the nature of, you know, our sector, right? You're very resilient, you're very adaptable, you're used to planning. Um, so we came out, I think we came out stronger because of it.
0: You clearly planned very well because here we are today and the company is still doing very well post pandemic. And I get the impression you're always prepared regardless how bad the going gets. With the lessons you learned from your experiences of running a business, for someone out there, is perhaps looking to start a med tech or biotech company, mm-hmm what advice would you offer for them and what are the mistakes that they should avoid in the early days?
1: Mm-hmm. There are some simple things that I I think about, or, oh, you know, kind of a few simple principles that I, I think about. Um, the first is that, that you really need to understand where, or, or, you really need to understand what your value is. Um, and so what do I mean by that? You need to understand what the problem is that you're uh, that, that you're solving, you need to understand why is it important and you need to understand how you're going to do it. And um, and it's not and so it's not just enough to have cool science and and a lot of people get very excited about science and then forget, well, you know exactly how am I going to deploy it right? They think about they then get focused on too many things, or they don't focus right they they're spread too thin. Uh, or they don't understand exactly whether it's going to make a difference. Well, they believe it's going to make a difference, but they haven't really analyzed how it's going to make a difference. Um, and they don't understand exactly how they're going to get there and then they find out that it's going to take too long or cost too much or there's some you know very difficult barrier. So all of those pieces are really important right what's the problem why is it why what's the problem you're solving why is it important and how are you going to get there. And so if you have those three things you can then focus on reducing it to practice right and you know I talk a lot about this idea of the tip of the spear so it the tip of the spear is just this idea of an initial proof point you've got to get to this initial proof point point. Um, and it this is so important particularly for a small company because as you're traveling that journey right that it's so easy to get distracted and it's that distraction that becomes is the company killer um, you know you, you know you see something like oh this is really cool we should go and look at this too. And then by the time you're, you know, even one of those distractions can be enough to throw you off. And so maintaining that focus, keeping everyone on that focus is really critical for success.
0: Your work within Glimpse Bio clearly keeps you very busy, but what do you like to get up to outside of work?
1: <laughs> I, you know, I really love to cook. Um, and m- maybe the, uh, maybe the chemist in me. Um, but also I I grew up in uh Uh, I grew up with a a small family um, that had a sort of a rich heritage of of cooking. Uh, My mother's a wonderful cook. My my maternal grandmother uh, was a wonderful cook and also my paternal grandmother as well. And there was just this, you know, cooking all around. Um, And so I, I I learned a huge amount from my mom and I, you know, it's something that, I've just I've always enjoyed and I f- I find it incredibly relaxing. Um, and I think then, like many people, the um, the pandemic, um, you know, kind of brought me back to that basic, which is that it, it's it's just this, it's this gift that you can give everyone. Uh, and it's in fact, you know, the gift of food. I it, in my family it was the gift of food, right? The the ability to feed so many people. You know, it's always like every Every time you have people come and see you, it's it's always about food. Um, that was the sort of the ethos in my family. And now with the with the pandemic, you know, when, when we were all stuck at home, the the sort of the gift of food was, you know, to to kind of was about bringing the family together. Um, and we've been fortunate; we've uh, we've managed as a family to kind of sustain that since. Um, and I remember before that, it used to be you know, it was Harrod and we were always, you know, we were never, we tried to be together for mealtimes, but we were never quite together. And it was always, you know, slightly different schedules. And sometimes it was like three quarters of the family, but never all of us. And now we we really make a point of it. And, um, you know, and and it's just the the whole cooking, the sort of the gift of food. And then, you know, so I, I try and cook every night. Um, and then at the weekends, it's you know, much more uh expensive. And I I just I love it. I really love
0: it. I think that's a wonderful hobby to have. You know, food brings people together around the world regardless of it their does. Background, it culture, etc. And I think as you probably touched on too, you got into this hobby of cooking, you've probably discovered all these extra wonderful ingredients and in different types of cuisine that maybe you've not even considered before.
1: Oh, and totally. And that's been that was the great thing because um you know there's kind of a you know, you have your own repertoire, but that's kind of boring after a while. So that, you know, that whole exploration of uh, of, of other cuisines um, is is phenomenal. And I love that when, you know, travel has been limited, but, you know, sort of pre-pandemic, just traveling, um, you know, other countries, I was fortunate to have been able to travel and just to we try and make a point in other countries of just going and learning something, um, whether it was, you know, like just some some something about how to cook in that country. There's always something to learn. Um, it's just it's just phenomenal. But YouTube is your friend. There's just there's, there's so much you can learn by watching uh, uh, by watching a, a YouTube video. And in fact, I my kids did uh, during the pandemic. This was awesome. They learned how to make authentic Japanese ramen from a from a a, a lady in Japan uh, on a on a YouTube. Uh, video class, it was just it was awesome, it was absolutely awesome. She had great English, and uh, I, the ramen is really good, I have to say. They're just these little tricks that you learn. Um, it's like the power of the global, uh, the global universe. So, there you go.
0: Yeah, I think I need to spend a bit more time on YouTube to learn about these. Ah, there's just
1: this, <laughs> I tell you, there is so, there is so, it's like a rabbit hole. You don't, I mean, I, I, you might want to watch like uh, like what, where it takes you, it, but you, you, you'll be forever like cooking different crazy things. But there's so much stuff to to learn. I learned everything, including like how to make the most obscene mashed potatoes. They absorb like more cream and butter than like is humanly unbelievable, um yeah, humanly believable. It's there's a lot to learn.
0: <laughs> so to wrap up today, what one piece of advice would you leave the listeners with?
1: Um, you know, th- that's a, th- that's a really great question. I think really generally, um, this, uh, this, this notion that, um, if, I think as you're, I, I just, I'm going to kind of tailor this a little bit towards, you know, folks, uh, I, I think who are, um, kind of building their careers, you know, right now. um, one of the the biggest uh, advantages that I have gained in my career, and I think that most people can gain in their career is to early on um, be open to kind of you know the breadth of opportunities that can be available to you. Um, it doesn't mean take every opportunity that's available to you, but it's about building a breadth of experience. and Early on in your career, it's really incredibly easy to do that. Later on in your career, it's much, much harder to backtrack and gain that experience. And that breadth is incredibly foundational to your growth and development. Um, and I, I think the, the ability for you to contribute long-term, um, you know, across whatever sector you're in, uh, is, you know, substantially enhanced by you know, adding that breadth early on. And so, you know, whatever organization you're in, whatever you're doing, always think about, you know, how can I add that breadth? And, and it could be that you stay in account role and you, you know, you seek an assignment that's in a different area. Um, you know, it can be by reading something that's outside of your area. There are lots and lots of different ways to do it, but don't be afraid of that breadth. Don't be afraid of that unknown um it really is you know it's your friend and it's a it's a great way to augment your um you know your experience and you know your expertise as you're developing your career.
0: Caroline it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show today and have you share your experiences and knowledges with us all and hope our paths cross again in the future.
1: Absolutely thank you it was a real pleasure I really appreciate the invitation thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to episode 20 of the MedSet podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Caroline, you can connect with her on LinkedIn or visit a company website at glimpsebio.com, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in the future, then feel free to send me a message and connect with me on LinkedIn.